Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews that explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. My name is Dr. Kara King, and I am your host. And welcome back to Unscrubbed, everybody. I hope everyone survived our daylight savings time spring ahead business this past weekend. I so appreciate our later sunsets, I'm not going to lie, but wow, my 5 a.m. alarm less appreciated. And as you all know, March is Endometriosis Awareness Month, and there have been amazing things happening in regard to virtual summits and conferences, endo walks, and patient advocacy groups really coming together. It has truly been a powerful month so far. And in this vein, we have the incredible honor of chatting with the esteemed Dr. Matthew Leonardi on our show this week, who is extremely passionate about blending the worlds of imaging and surgery. Matthew is currently practicing at McMaster University in Toronto after completing a fellowship in imaging and surgery in the beautiful Sydney, Australia. He is extremely skilled in advanced sonography for endometriosis and really all pelvic pathology and is very well published in this area as well. Today, Matthew will talk to us about advanced endometriosis imaging and how it impacts preoperative counseling, planning, and intraoperative surgical intervention. He will also discuss how to build skills in advanced sonography and incorporate this into residency as well as fellowship education. We hope you enjoy. So I am so excited to have Dr. Matthew Leonardi on our show today. We've been waiting so long to get you on here. So Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today on Unscrubbed. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here, Kara. This is uh, an incredible opportunity to talk with you about an amazing area of medicine, a really advancing area of medicine that I'm so passionate about. So thanks for the opportunity. Yes, absolutely. And so we are going to dive into all of your passions, meaning really into imaging and how it integrates with surgery in regard to pre-op planning and and surgical intervention. So we're going to get into all of that today. But I want to start out by hearing your story, Matthew. Can you tell me a bit about your journey on how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly uh, what I do is relatively unique in the realm of gynecology and uh, the path to get there was very unique as well. When I did my residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Toronto, I was very fortunate to work with a few key sonographers who made me realize how incredible a tool ultrasound is. This was usually in the realm of obstetrics in maternal fetal medicine settings, but the tool itself was this incredible tool that I just fell in love with. And so over the course of my residency, I realized that I was a bit more gynecologically inclined than obstetrics, uh, but couldn't consolidate how to integrate imaging and ultrasound into that. Of course, we all know how integral imaging is and ultrasound is into maternal fetal medicine, where most MFMs are doing ultrasound, interpreting ultrasound with the patient right there in front of them, you know, interacting in a dynamic fashion. But certainly, I never got to see that in a gynecology setting. So I sought uh, some mentorship from people in Toronto who had experience internationally and went to the United Kingdom in my fourth year of residency on elective for a summer, one of the best summers of my whole life. And uh, I worked with Davor Yurkovic and Kevin Hayes, two gynecologists who integrate imaging into their practice. And, uh, And I worked with a number of their trainees, and it was just this mind-blowing, eye-opening experience, how gynecologists can use imaging themselves in a one-stop gynecology clinic, both from a diagnostic and management standpoint. So it was that time in my life that I realized that this is what I have to do. How do I do it was the next question. So whilst I was in the UK, I learned about Professor George Condes, who is a Sydney gynecologist, a advanced gynecologic surgeon and sonologist. And he had done his training in the UK, which is where I heard his name. So I reached out to him and I happened to be going to Australia for a vacation and elective that same fall. So I met up with him. I said, I'm keen to do fellowship in, uh, in imaging and in surgery. Would you consider, you know, letting me come to Sydney? And uh, within a few minutes of talking, he's like, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's, let's get the ball rolling. So that took a long time. The bureaucracy was uh, endless, but Certainly it got there. So I went to Sydney, Australia to do a combined surgery 
and Imaging Fellowship, Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery and Advanced Ultrasound. And so I spent uh, over two years there. It was meant to be two years, but because of the pandemic, I stayed a little bit longer. And also the weather is a bit better in Sydney. So that uh, encouraged me too. And there, you know, my, my life continued to change because I, I got the opportunity to become an expert in advanced surgery and in ultrasound to the point that I now perform and interpret all of my own advanced ultrasound, not just for endometriosis, but for fibroids, for intracavitary pathology, for ovarian masses, and really utilize it in a dynamic fashion with patients right there in front of me, giving them immediate feedback, integrating the imaging findings with the clinical history, the physical exam, and coming to a conclusion with the patient on the best course of action based on their perspective, really. So then I came back to Canada for a number of reasons, primarily family-driven reasons, and uh, got a job at McMaster University, which is an incredible academic center in Hamilton, Canada. And uh, I'm now an assistant professor here, part of the minimally invasive gynecology surgery program for the fellows that we have. And we're really integrating advanced imaging principles into every patient's care that comes through our doors. We're utilizing it in the clinic. We're utilizing it in the operating room. And, uh, and certainly the opportunity that the fellows are getting is amazing. My interaction with patients is in- incredible because this is a, a realm of medicine that they've not yet really uh, had an opportunity to encounter. So that's where I am today. You are so inspiring. Like you created your own path, right? I mean, you're someone that really like felt where your passion was and then like created your own path. I mean, were you, were you the first fellow in, in Australia at that program? So I might be a bit unique in a Canadian and American setting, but I don't think I'm all that unique in a uh, world setting. So in the UK and in Australia, a lot more gynecologists do their own ultrasound. I would still say that it's relatively rare to bridge the imaging and surgery pillars of gynecology. So there are people who focus more on the imaging side or people who do more surgery, but of course they build relationships with radiologists or sonologists to bring in that piece. But it is relatively rare to sort of bridge both of those pillars. Uh, So, you know, I find I did pave my own path from a Canadian standpoint (laughs) by going outside of Canada. But I had a lot of mentorship along the way from colleagues in the UK, colleagues in Australia, and support from people back here in Canada to do that journey. Certainly, I couldn't do what I'm doing now without the support of Dr. Nick Leyland, who's the chair of the program here at McMaster, who saw what I was doing and was so excited by it, was so open-minded to the integration of ultrasound, which he does as well integrate into his practice. He brought me on board and, uh, and essentially has handed me this incredible practice, fully formed practice of complex gynecology, endometriosis patients, And so I couldn't be doing what I'm doing without supportive people all over the world, really. Truly all over the world. Yeah, you're exactly right. Now, talk to me a bit about the ultrasound exposure for Canadian OBGYN residents. What kind of exposure do you guys get at baseline during, is it, is it residency? Is it, is it, it's called residency, right? Yeah. Yeah. In Canada, we call it residency as well. And we're residents, um, And so we have a five-year residency program in Canada, and the programs across the country are all of very high quality. They're all very much standardized by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. There are guidelines that the programs follow for various rotations, one of which is an ultrasound rotation that I have to say is primarily obstetrics-based. So you do spend some time doing ultrasound. You go to usually uh, an obstetrics unit that does imaging, does ultrasound, and you get an opportunity potentially to be hands-on depending on a number of factors. You know, it's the same as how hands-on a resident can be with surgery, depending on where you are at your training, you know, where you are with your personal skill set, where the complexity of the cases are at. So When I was a resident, I certainly asked to be hands-on as much as possible. And sometimes, like kind of like in surgery, when somebody says, oh, I want to take over now, 
you kind of resist a little bit. You're like, no, no, no. Like, can I just do a little bit more, push myself a little bit more? So I kind of had that same mentality, both in ultrasound and surgery. Like I didn't want to let go of the probe. Um, (laughs) So there is ultrasound exposure. There is, but we did a survey um, of graduating OBGYNs in Canada a number of years ago that was published in the JOGC, the uh, Canadian journal. And essentially, we identified a huge gap in ultrasound training for gynecology-related issues. Most graduating OBGYNs did not feel like they could even hold a transvaginal ultrasound probe to find a uterus. So it kind of makes sense, though, because when patients present to the emergency department with query ectopic pregnancy, abnormal uterine bleeding, it's a sonographer that's scanning and the images are being interpreted by a radiologist. We might look at the pictures ourselves if you're working with a consultant, a staff that encourages you to do that, but that then requires them to actually have the skill to know what they're looking at, which if it's not part of the training program, very few people are going to have that skill. So the gynae ultrasound exposure in Canada, and I think it's probably not that different in the States, is limited, certainly both in the realm of performing and interpreting. Right now, there are a few centers in Canada that are starting to integrate ultrasound a little bit more. I think the same is happening in the US. And so depending on where you are, if you're lucky and to to be in a center that is integrating it, you might get some exposure. Certainly my residents, every time they come to the clinic, every time they come to an OR where we do the ultrasound, you know, we're getting that exposure. Just recently, we had a a cesarean scar ectopic pregnancy and we brought the ultrasound machine to the OR. Uh, We did a laparoscopic and hysteroscopic, sorry, a laparoscopic and uh, an ultrasound guided uh, aspiration of the pregnancy and then an isthmusial repair. But as we were doing the actual suction aspect, we had the laparoscopic view watching from above, and we had a transrectal ultrasound probe watching from below. And so, you know, it gives trainees an opportunity to see things in different ways. You know, you're seeing it from above, you're seeing it from below, and you can start to consolidate what things look like in normal and abnormal states. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more about, uh, it sounds like the training is very similar, like you said, like you set up in Canada and here in the States. And I love the idea of really integrating ultrasound techniques in all rotations, right? When you have this like four-week ultrasound block, per se, um, I think it can be sometimes hard to extrapolate how that's meaningful on your day-to-day. So I love the idea of really integrating it. And, you know, we're really unique here at the Cleveland Clinic in that we have tracked residency program as well, meaning we have one to three month blocks each year we can track into specific areas that the resident wants to improve in. And so many residents do actually focus on ultrasound, which I think is really powerful as well. Well, when you think about the various subspecialties, which is the easiest way to think about our overall specialty, you know, of course, in MFM, ultrasound is such a key role, has a key role in the fetal aspect of the pregnancy. In reproductive endocrinology and infertility, it's very much ultrasound based in terms of acquiring oocytes and doing ultrasound guided procedures like IUI or embryo transfers. If you think about gyne oncology, Almost every decision there is made using imaging, although it's not always just ultrasound. Of course, it's CT and MRI being integrated as well. But majority of our patients who have a gynae oncology issue start their process with an ultrasound. So just those three alone, you really can appreciate how integral ultrasound is into our decision making. And I do feel a little bit like we've, I think we've given this a really important piece of our specialty to another specialty, which is, of course, radiology. And in some ways, what we're seeing with obstetrics is that the MFMs are kind of taking back ultrasound into their own hands because of the necessity to perform it in a dynamic kind of one-stop shop manner. And I think there will always, always be a role for radiologists and sonographers, and their skill set is incredible. But I do think that there will be a role for us to mimic as gynecologists what MFMs have done and bring ultrasound into our practice and use it in a one-stop fashion. I love it. Yeah, I'm, you're going exactly where I want this conversation to go. And I'm, I'm thinking a lot about that, right? So the skill of the operator and the knowledge of the anatomy is really what dictates if you get high-quality scans or not, right? Meaningful and useful scans. So 
and I'm thinking about the case you just explained, right? Where you had a C-section scar ectopic and you were using ultrasound intra um, uh, in, the, in the OR to help guide you. So who do you think should be doing these scans? Like, do you do all of your own scans? How do you integrate your sonographer? Do sonographers have enough anatomical knowledge to really be able to delineate some of these deeply infiltrating endometriosis nodules, which we'll talk about shortly? I guess, who do you think should be doing these scans in the big picture? So it's a very, very difficult question. If you think about medicine in general, we have essentially gatekeepers to make sure that not everybody in the population gets to the most expert person in a problem. At least that's the sort of model that currently exists, right? We have family physicians who have a really broad knowledge base to understand how to manage issues at first presentation, how to investigate issues at first presentation, and when to refer onwards. And then of course we have specialists and then we have subspecialists. And so, you know, I will never have the capacity to scan everybody as much as I would like to. That's not reasonable. And so we have to start to understand where people's skill sets will fit in this puzzle. So to answer one of your questions very specifically, you know, do I scan all of my patients? Yes, I scan every single patient that comes into my clinic. Very rarely will I ask for another imaging modality like MRI or CT. If we have concerns for a gynae malignancy and we're thinking about referring on to gynae oncology, then yeah, I'll integrate a CT. But the basis of that decision is what the ovary looks like or ovaries look like using the IOTA terms. If I want to bring in an MRI, that's because I think the disease is maybe too high from what the transvaginal ultrasound probe can see, maybe sigmoid disease, or I'm a bit equivocal on my findings. So, you know, I want to get a second sense using a different imaging modality. But otherwise, every patient that comes into my clinic, I scan myself and perform an advanced ultrasound for everybody. I look at the bowel, the bladder, the ureters for everybody. Because if I'm thinking about doing, let's say, a hysterectomy for bleeding, and this patient happens to have dysmenorrhea and some pelvic pain, well, if that's not their primary complaint, but they have endo, I want to know that before surgery because I want to consent them for excision of endo. And I don't want to get into incidental obliteration of the rectuterine uterine pouch because who wants to get into that? So I do a full scan on everybody. And now I'm getting my fellows to be doing the scans guided by my education. And they're becoming almost independent. It takes some time, but they're getting to the point where I'll be able to trust them with that competency. Broadly speaking, I think there will, like I said, always be a role for sonographers and radiologists. It may be that they fill a similar role as family physicians, sort of the gatekeepers to first presentation. If a patient has an ongoing problem that's persistent or difficult to diagnose, this is where the expertise of a sonologist may come into play. Somebody who has that higher level and more specific knowledge of the anatomy, of the pathology, and really what's also important to gynecologists is the knowledge of how to use the imaging for the clinical decision-making, right? We're making the decisions about how to manage those patients. So the way that the scan is done, the way that it's reported needs to be fashioned so that it gives us the answers we need, right? I think in the future, there will be roles for advanced trained sonographers or nurse practitioners who work in that field. And certainly my experience in Toronto is that nurse practitioners who were trained in advanced imaging for fetal issues, they were doing a lot of the scans. So I think there'll be room for it to be sort of multi-level, multidisciplinary, um, but ultimately supervised by somebody who is an expert sonologist. I love this. And I, 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 I don't know if you've stated this before, if I've read it by you before, but from you, I've heard surgeons should not be surprised by what they find at surgery, or more importantly, patients should not be surprised to learn of surgical findings when they awake. And I think you nailed that, right? Like right patient, right time, right surgeon, all the things should be lined up. And unfortunately, it's not uncommon for us to see patients that say, you know, my, my surgeon dropped a scope and they were like, oh my goodness, you have stage four endo. And they burned a few areas and got out. And I, I just feel like that's such a disservice for our patients when they don't have the right surgery the first time. What do you think about that? Yeah, it, um, it brings up a lot of emotions, to be honest, because you see 
And you know, I know you know, because you see these referrals from patients, from docs who have operated on somebody and done an incomplete or abandoned surgery. And, you know, you feel bad for the patient, for sure. But you also feel bad for the surgeon because they're doing their best, right? The tools that they have are limited. They are not able to ask their local radiologist to do the sliding sign. They're not able to ask their local radiologist yet to look for bowel endometriosis. So if they get into surprises, well, you know, it's kind of understandable at this point, but it's not acceptable. Like we got to figure out a way to move on from that surprise scenario. So, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to actively do is keep track of how often patients come with this story of peak and shriek surgeries or incomplete surgeries because we know as people who subspecialize in advanced surgery that this happens all the time. And gynecologists all over the place know because they're unfortunately getting into these situations where the disease is more advanced than what they were anticipating. But I'm not sure that we have really consolidated this knowledge into a more credible form of information. Like we haven't actually published to say that this is a real problem, that patients are experiencing peak and shriek surgeries, incomplete surgeries, abandoned surgeries. We haven't really put that into a form that is credible. It's just sort of general knowledge, right? And I don't know, maybe not everything needs to be a publication, but I do feel that when something is published, it becomes a little bit easier to trust because it's gone through a more rigorous process with peer review. So it's a really sad thing. And I think both gynecologists and patients want the same outcome, which is to not be surprised. With ultrasound, there are still limitations, and maybe we'll talk about some of these limitations. But I can tell you with a very, very high degree of certainty that I can predict advanced endometriosis almost 100% of the time. I may not map the disease perfectly 100% of the time, but are we going to miss bowel endometriosis and obliteration of the pouch? It's very, very unlikely. So that simple tool of ultrasound to rule those entities out prior to surgery will prevent peak and shriek surgeries. And that's, everybody wins there, including the health system, which spends a lot of money on surgery. Perfectly stated, as always. So when so when you receive referrals, you're experiencing this exact same thing then, the peak and shriek reports, the incomplete. All of the time. Yeah. No, I see it all. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, endo is a, a huge part of my practice, as you know. But yeah, every day in clinic, I see multiple patients with this story. And I love how you stated it's not just, you know, unfortunate and emotional for the patient, but you know that surgeon who dropped the scope didn't want to find that either. And that doesn't feel good for them. And so... Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. You know, there's some some probably knowledge that we can share on on all levels. But I I agree. I think it just optimizes the entire system when we can have better pre-op imaging for counseling and for pre-op planning for all the things. Right? You stated it perfect. Yeah. So I want to dive into your exact ultrasound that we're talking about. You have so many fantastic yeah, publications. Sure. Really really detailing this. One of my favorite is your publication from 2018, right? Entitled How to Perform an Ultrasound to Diagnose Endometriosis. And you go into great detail on the type of ultrasound that you're talking about. And I received a lot of questions when people heard that I was interviewing you about how to really integrate this type of ultrasound at their institution. Like you stated, you're not, you're not doing very many MRIs and, and a lot of us are being pushed to do MRIs because our ultrasounds aren't that accurate and a lot of insurance companies won't, won't cover the MRI. So we're kind of in this situation. So talk to us about the type of imaging that you're doing. You, you talk about this four-step system in your publication. Can you talk us through what that looks like? For sure. So, I mean, it's much easier to see in a visual sense. So I do encourage people to access the article. It's a free access article published in the Adjum, which is the Australasian Journal of Ultrasound and Medicine. There is, I would say, even a more up-to-date approach to non-invasive diagnosis of endometriosis on imaging on the contemporary OBGYN website, uh, which includes, I would say, even a lot more pictures and videos, so it's a bit more of a visual. But in any case, the ultrasound does have four broad components as defined by the International Deep Endometriosis Analysis Group. 
which is a big international collaborative that has tried to standardize the approach to endometriosis ultrasound, both from a how to do, but also how to report, how to measure all of these elements of a scan. So more or less, the four components are assessment of the uterus and the adnexa, which really encompass what the standard of care ultrasound is around most of the world. So in the United States, the American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine, and in Canada, the Canadian Association of Radiologists, with the collaboration of the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, have published on this standard of care ultrasound, which includes the uterus assessment and the ovaries assessment. And I always say this in the presentations, but they also do recommend to look at the rectouterine pouch or the cul-de-sac for fluid or mass. And you can't see me, but I'm putting those in quotations because they're <laughs> relatively undefined in the guidelines. So, you know, you could say that mass equals endometriosis, but certainly no general radiologist in the community doing standard of care ultrasound is looking for bowel endometriosis in that area. This is a generalization, of course. So the uterus and the ovaries can be assessed and they recommend the integration of the MUSA terms and the IOTA terms. So these are papers that are really important, uh, landmark papers that describe how to do and how to report ultrasound on the uterus and the ovaries. MUSA stands for Morph Morphologic Uterine Sonographic Assessment, and IOTA stands for the International Ovarian Tumor Analysis Group. So that's the first step of the ultrasound. The next step of the ultrasound is to look for the um, direct visualization of endometriosis. And this is in various compartments of the pelvis, the anterior and the posterior compartment. Anterior, of course, is primarily the bladder. Uh, the ureters can be incorporated into that, although most endometriosis doesn't directly affect the ureters, but can be in close proximity. And the posterior compartment is where most endometriosis is. It uh, consists generally of the bowel, which is everywhere from the sigmoid down, the uterosacral ligaments, the rectovaginal septum, which is very controversial, and I'd love to talk a little bit about that, um, <laughs> the posterior vaginal fornix, and the rectouterine pouch. So direct visualization of disease is essential. Then there is the soft markers element of the four-part scan. Soft markers are defined, like in obstetrics, as features on ultrasound that might mean something else. So you might see that an ovary is stuck, ovarian immobility. This is not direct visualization of endometriosis, but it may represent endometriosis between the ovary and the pelvic sidewall, for example, or between the ovary and the uterosacral ligament. Soft markers also consist of site-specific tenderness. Now, I have to say personally, this is... I think one of the most controversial pieces of the ultrasound because most patients with endometriosis have some element of chronic pelvic pain and pelvic floor dysfunction. So of course the ultrasound probe is hitting the vaginal mucosa, the pelvic floor muscles, and then the structures inside the abdomen. And so a lot of patients have site-specific tenderness, even if they don't have direct visualization of endometriosis. Then there is the final compartment or component rather of the ultrasound, which is the sliding sign, which truthfully is also kind of a soft marker. So the sliding sign is a sign that represents severe adhesions within the pelvis, within the rectouterine pouch, generally between the uterus and the bowel. And so those are the four pillars of the idea-based scan. I don't do it in that order. I do it in a slightly different order that makes a little bit more sense based on the uh, essentially geography of the ultrasound probe. As the probe is entering the patient's vagina, I'm looking at the vagina, I'm looking at the lower rectum, the retroperitoneal rectum, and I'm looking at the rectovaginal septum. So even though those are for direct visualization, they're the first things I do. And I follow the bowel immediately as I enter the abdomen. So as soon as we enter the intra-abdominal intra, uh, compartment beyond the lower rectum, I'm following that rectum as high up in the patient as I can. Once I do that, and that's my visualization for the bowel endometriosis, I usually then bring the probe back into the place that's best to view the uterus. Most of the time that's in the anterior vaginal fornix because most patients have an anterior uterus. 
But in those that don't have an introverted uterus and have a retroverted uterus, the probe settles more nicely into the posterior vaginal fornix. So that's when I start to look at the uterus, and then I look at the ovaries. And usually when I'm looking at the uterus, I'm also doing the sliding sign sort of built in to it all. And then after that is when I go looking directly for the deep endometriosis elsewhere in the pelvis. So that's kind of the broad approach. This is a little bit of a plug, but there is a uh, Cleveland Clinic meeting that's upcoming, the controversies in endometriosis, adenomyosis, and fibroids. And uh, I will be giving a very prescriptive talk on how to perform ultrasound for endometriosis with lots of visuals, videos, and images. And it's, it's what I've just said, but in a more instructive fashion, a bit more organized. And so I encourage people to consider registering for that. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's perfectly timed with Endometriosis Awareness Month, right? Middle of March. So uh, it's yeah. March 19th, 20th, and 21st. So that was that was a great description. I know it's hard when you don't have videos and and um, and pictures, but that, that was fantastic. Matthew, tell me, are you using any vaginal or rectal gel or bowel prep? What are you doing in regards to that? I'm not. No, it's a completely plain transvaginal ultrasound. Of course, it's well lubricated and there's gel in between the probe and the probe cover. That's that's it, really. The bladder of the patient is empty. They don't have to worry about filling their bladder before the scan, sitting in the waiting room with a bladder that's about to burst. So patients quite like that piece. Um, they don't have to do bowel prep. We don't have to put in gel in the vagina. It's a very plain transvaginal ultrasound. There is um, a technique that we've published on called saline infusion sonopodography. And by we, I mean Professor George Condes and our team in Sydney. We have essentially hijacked the sonohistrography or tubal patency ultrasound assessment by allowing the fluid that is put into those places to travel through the fallopian tubes and fill the rectouterine pouch. Sonopodography is really pouch, sono pouch of Douglasography. Um, I'm trying more and more to call it the rectouterine pouch because the publication in the AJOG, which talks about proper nomenclature of female pelvic anatomy, encourages rectouterine pouch. There's also some part of me that wants to take away the name Douglas, which is a male name from a female anatomic space. So there's that piece too. But in any case, that's what our technique is called, sonopodography. And so we're actually putting fluid into the pouch and utilizing the fluid to create planes that don't otherwise exist. In a baseline pelvis without fluid, the small bowel, the large bowel comes up and abuts the uterus and the peritoneum. But when fluid is there, those structures start to move apart which allow you to actually inspect the peritoneum and the uterosacral ligaments, the peritoneum overlying those uterosacral ligaments a lot more clearly. And this is a way to increase our ability to diagnose superficial endometriosis, which has remained the most enigmatic form of endometriosis, and yet it's the most common form, to diagnose using imaging. So that is something that uh, we are doing a little bit more in terms of uh, additive pieces to the to the scan. And in regard to your SPG, what are you guys injecting into the uterus? I think I read that you guys are using two mils of jellofusine, eight mils of normal saline, and one milliliter of air. Is that is that usually what you inject? So that's for the tubal patency assessment. Mm. So on Hycosi, we definitely want a fluid with some contrast. So jellofusin is a, essentially a, an anesthetic agent. We don't really use it in gynecology, but you can create a very uh, densely white fluid substance by mixing it with normal saline and agitating it. So that's what we use for hycosy. And uh, for the saline infusion sonopodography, we want an anechoic fluid. So we want a clear fluid as best as possible. So normal saline would work best for Perfect. that. By the time... If you're going to do all these three procedures together, sonohistrography, hycosy, and SPG, sonopodography, then you'd have to wait for a few seconds for the gelifusin and the normal saline to settle once it fills the pouch because they'll separate and then the fluid will become anechoic. And you can see it. I got it. Yeah, exactly. And then do you have any tips on looking at the anterior cul-de-sac in patients with multiple C-sections, right? So- the scarring of multiple C-sections, right? Can that look like endo there as well? So 
I wouldn't say it looks like endo per se, but there are features on ultrasound that we need to start to look for. So just like you want to know about the rectouterine pouch obliteration state preoperatively before you plan a patient's endosurgery or their hysterectomy, it would be very useful to know whether the bladder is very stuck or not at all. Not to uh, to reveal secrets mm -hmm. and, and spoilers, but uh, we're starting a diagnostic accuracy study at McMaster, whereby we're going to use ultrasound to predict the presence of bladder to uterus adhesions in patients who are undergoing a hysterectomy. The goal is the same as the goal for endometriosis, minimize surprises, maximize surgical preparedness, and optimize the informed consent process for patients so that way they know if they're at risk for a bladder injury or not. I mean, there are, everybody always is sort of at risk if you're having a hysterectomy, but certainly a lot less so if your bladder is not stuck. Yeah, I know. We all, it's so true. We all have those patients where you do your bimanual, right? And you like lift up and they enter abdominal wall and their entire uterus comes with it. And you're like, uh-oh, there may be some scarring here. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I don't need imaging for this one. Yeah. yeah. And that can make the hysterectomy oh so gosh. difficult. I had a very difficult hysterectomy recently. It wasn't because she had a previous section. It was because she had previous bladder endometriosis that was resected. But the bladder was just completely plastered to the uterus. And it took a long time to dissect. And so our case went longer than planned. And then our last case of the day was canceled. Unfortunately, because of the limitations in the public healthcare system, you got to stay on time. And if you don't, somebody suffers because they get canceled and have to be rebooked. So it's very sad for everybody involved. But knowing about that situation preoperatively would have been very helpful. So that way I could have just booked the case for an extra hour or two and planned my day more appropriately. Absolutely. We've all been there for sure. So I love the way you delineated all those different spaces that you, that you evaluate with your ultrasounds. Do you have a specific template that you use that you fill in? And if you do, would you be willing to share that? Or do you have any references and places that want to get this up and running? Yeah. I mean, it's really not that um, challenging, to be honest. So more or less, when you're reporting on your uterus, you want to report on the size, the measurements, which I think is pretty standard, run of the mill. You want to look at the myometrium and the endometrium and describe features in both of those places. And the myometrium features would, of course, include fibroids. So if you're going to look for fibroids, you got to provide three measurements for fibroids so that the surgeon can have a volume available to them. Understand where that fibroid is in space in the uterus, right? Endometrium measurements for the actual endometrium and for intracavitary pathology. So this is not really that innovative. The ovaries, similarly, I follow the IOTA principles. So if you were to look at any lecture on IOTA or any paper on IOTA, it's very clear what features are necessary. The size of a cyst, the contents of the cyst, the regularity or irregularity of the internal wall of the cyst, vascular flow and solid components. So we've described these features. When it comes to the endometriosis piece, looking outside of those two structures, it's more or less a present, absent, and measurement. There's sometimes a bit of qualitative descriptors as well. So if you have lesions in the uterosacral ligament in the bowel, you want to know, are these lesions actually sort of congruent? Are they contiguous or are they totally separate? Because as the surgeon, once you start to dissect that space, you understand how difficult it can be to actually identify the disease versus, you know, scarring and fibrosis and just the blood from the actual surgery can get in the way of identifying things. So you just describe the various anatomic sites, the features of the disease in that, primarily the size. When it comes to bowel endometriosis, one of the really important pieces is to note whether it's unifocal or multifocal, how far apart are the disease sites when there are more than one, and how close is the lowest lesion to the anal verge, which has huge implication on what type of segmental resection would need to happen if a segmental resection was to happen. And each of the various segmental resections will have different risk profiles. Giving that information to the colorectal surgeon that you bring along with you allows them to have a better informed consent process with the patient, potentially involving the planning of a temporary diverting ileostomy. Although, you know, I, I know that we're sort of moving away from that regardless of where the lesion is. So yeah, I wouldn't say that um, I have a readily accessible template, but certainly there are 
ways to facilitate that, I think. It's a good idea. Fantastic. I feel like if you have that template, then it, it makes people more in tune with what they, what they should be looking at too. So that was, that was a great outline though. Yeah. My next question has to do with the skill level of, of sonographer that may be at different institutions. Let's say you have somebody who's really motivated to learn these techniques. How do you recommend that they gain this skill? Do you have different conferences that you recommend or, or how do people take their skills to the next level? I would say that the moment in time that we are living during the COVID pandemic has made learning a lot more accessible. The number of talks that I've given on endometriosis imaging has, I would say, just skyrocketed because of the ability to record lectures and present those lectures at various congresses that you would not otherwise have a chance to go to because you can't be, you know, going on a world tour speaking at every single meeting. So there are ample opportunities online to actually access instructional videos on how to do the scan, how to report the scan, how the scan is relevant to diagnosis, how it's relevant to management. So I would seek out these opportunities. And in fact, a lot of them are free. I've even been posting some to my YouTube channel, which uh, is also free. So, you know, check that out and have a, have a look at the videos there to get some content and some learning. I would recommend for people to try to find a local mentor, somebody who might be in the gynecology sphere or in the radiology sphere, who's not only keen, but maybe a bit ahead of the curve in terms of their learning for this particular disease process and try to work together. But a lot of it can be self-directed learning. So, you know, every time you scan a patient, if you make an effort to follow the bowel, you'll get better at it. Every time you scan a patient, if you pop the probe into that posterior vaginal fornix to try and look at the uterosacral ligaments, you'll get better at it. And so it does take time. You know, it takes some refinement. And it is difficult if you don't have immediate feedback. But I think there are ways that people can do a lot more self-directed learning and can become local champions at their center and then start to teach others as well. Certainly, that's how George Condis started. He did his residency in the United Kingdom, where ultrasound was a really big piece of their training. And his main area of focus at the end of his training in the UK was in early pregnancy, ectopic pregnancy, pregnancy of unknown location. That's what he was really well known for. When he got to Sydney, he started to be doing more advanced gynae imaging. And he was almost self-taught on how to do this. And he's one of the leading world experts in this manner. So, you know, I think it's definitely possible if, you, if you're motivated and you have some time on your side to, uh, to access resources. Really great points. And I'd also bring up the opportunity to go back and review your images after you do your surgery, right? So one thing I always have my learners do is obviously review all the images before surgery, do your operation, and then go back and look. And that really helps close the loop. For sure. So one of the, one of the amazing things about being a sonologist and a surgeon is I have a built-in loop. So I know what the images are, then I know what the surgery is, and then I think about my images and I you know, I think, God, like I saw a lesion in that left uterosacral ligament, but it's not there at surgery. So what did I see? So then you start to question, you know, like, is there something else that I'm missing? Was it, you know, was it a blood vessel? Was it a clot that could have come from a ruptured hemorrhagic cyst? You know, you start to think of what the alternatives are. So there's this built-in communication loop. But again, most people are not bridging both worlds of imaging and surgery. Certainly, you know, you can look at the MRI, you can look at the ultrasounds before, even if you're not performing them, and then look back, but you don't have that same memory of what it was like performing the scan. And, you know, the things that are not captured are still part of that memory. I have uh, just published a commentary with Prof Condis and uh, another good uh, friend and colleague, Mercedes Espada, in, uh, from, both from Sydney, on closing the communication loop because we know it exists with our, within ourselves as sonologists, but when you don't have that ability to close it yourself, you have to talk to your radiologist and you have to tell them, this is what I've seen, this is what you gave me in your report, and now this is what I've seen. And sometimes it could be right, and sometimes it could be discrepant, and both are valuable for learning. It's a controversial concept because it would be a big endeavor, a big effort for radiologists and sonographers to be reviewing surgical reports. It's not part of the practice now. So it would be a practice changing idea. 
but it would be an idea that would allow for the most optimal learning, I think. So in this writing of the commentary, I came across a publication. I don't remember the authors off the top of my head, but they had started to work with AI on identifying the discrepant reports between radiology and surgery. So that way, the feedback loop to radiologists and sonographers was primarily those that were discrepant rather than every single one that existed, because it would just be too much effort. So I think this is a very interesting avenue to, uh, to consider. But one way for people to start this process now is just talk to your radiologist and say, hey, you know, we, we need to work on advancing gynae imaging in general. And it's not to say that they're doing a bad job. It's just to say that there's always room for improvement. And one idea is to actually give you reports from the surgery or maybe pictures. You could draw the depiction of what it looked like and give them that as well, which they might appreciate a bit more. So it's an idea. We'll see where it goes. I think it's fantastic. I think you and I had a little discussion on in the Twitter world about this because I am completely on board with this. And, you know, we have benign, we call them benign tumor boards here at the clinic. Yeah. And it is so powerful on both ends. Um, and I like the idea of, of finding your champions, right? So if you can find champions within radiology who really want to improve their skill here, do once a month, once every two month tumor boards, and then you're, they're reviewing their images with you, you're reviewing their, your surgical images with them, you're looking at your path reports, what was actually endo, what was fibrosis. I think that is, that is incredibly powerful for all, all different subspecialties. So I, I love that suggestion. Yeah, and you involve your pathologist in it as well, right? Yeah, uh, we do. Yeah, we have, yeah. yeah, we have, yeah, pathology, urology, cores, radiology, us, REI, sometimes gynonc. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, that's amazing. It's really great. I mean, one of the big, one of the big controversies is still how good are surgeons at being able to truly identify endometriosis at surgery. And of course, our true, true diagnos diagnosis is histopathology, right? Histopathology is not perfect either. So there are limitations with every diagnostic method. But, you know, if we don't talk with our pathologists about what we've actually seen and called endometriosis, but it's not, well, we're also not going to get better at identifying it at surgery. 100%. Yeah, I could not agree more. Have you found thus far that uh, there has been both uptake and improvement in imaging since the integration of the benign gynae tumor boards? I, yes, I think so. Absolutely. And my fellow's thesis paper isn't around benign tumor board, but around our integration with the RADS team. We have an amazing champion here who is just absolutely fantastic. And just looking at our accuracy with, with pre-op diagnosis and how that's actually changed intra-op surgical intervention. So yeah, stay tuned. That's, that's coming out hopefully within the next year or so. Amazing. Was it very difficult to establish? You, the, the relationship between RADS and us? Well, the, 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 the actual, the multidisciplinary team meeting, getting that going. You, you know, Honestly, people were completely on board. So we already have pretty strong champions in all of the areas. Like we have an amazing core surgeon who does most of our cases with us. We have our RADS team, urology. There's already kind of built-in champions already here that, I mean, our place is huge. So, um, so we kind of already had that there. And to be honest, we have our benign tumor board, I think once every three months right now, it's kind of spaced out. Mm -hmm. And we've been they've been asking us to have it more frequent. They want to have it once a month. Yeah. So we've actually had no trouble at all getting everybody on board. That's great. How many cases do you review at a meeting? It's 60 minutes, and we usually have time for about four to five. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Cool. That's amazing. Congratulations on that. Thank you. And I think that's something that's quote-unquote easy, meaning low resource, meaning like financial... There's no real financial part of it. Time is there, but um, but I think yeah. that's very much accessible, hopefully, at most institutions too. Okay, I know we're running short on time. I have one more question for you because I, yeah. I can't get enough of you. Okay, so I want to talk about the curriculum for your fellows right now. So tell me, what does your curriculum look like for your fellows? I know you have you published a paper about how one size um, doesn't fit all, right, for, for, for teaching about ultrasounds. You've got learning curves and all these things. What does your current curriculum look like and, and how does it feel for your fellows? This is a, an evolving area, I would say. So like I said, I was very fortunate to be invited into um, MIG's team at McMaster by Dr. Leyland. And Dr. Leyland and Dr. Sarah Scatalon were the core players of that MIG's team. And so now I'm part of that team. And both of them did, to a degree, integrate ultrasound into their practice, but it's taken a, a sort of a new life now, a much larger life than previous. So 
we're figuring out how to best integrate the imaging piece into the fellowship. I am still getting my footing here. So while I have a, an actual clinic space and I have patients and tons of them at that, uh, and we're scanning each of those, it's still limited in terms of volume for training in ultrasound. One of my goals is to obtain resources to actually have a standalone ultrasound clinic day whereby I can scan patients that don't belong to me as their most responsible physician, that belong to family physicians and gynecologists in the community to provide them with that advanced level of imaging. That's yet not yet established, but we're working on getting that going, which will certainly increase our volume and our ability to allow fellows and other trainees, including residents at the program here at McMaster, to achieve a higher level of competency with respect to gynae ultrasound. So it's still very much in the works, but as it stands right now, in my clinic day of the week, I have a virtual clinic day and I have an in-person clinic day. The in-person clinic day, we're scanning everybody, essentially. And so the fellow who's assigned to me on that particular clinic day will go into the room and they will start the scan and do as much of the scan as they can independently. Then they'll come and tell me what they've seen. We'll review the images and I'll say, yes, that looks good. No, that doesn't look good. What are you capturing here? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> kind of stuff like that. And, uh, <laughs> and so then I go into the room with them. And then depending on you know how we're going with the clinic, because it's usually running behind, I might finish the scan myself, picking up the rest of the things that are necessary. Or I might get them to hold the probe and I'll guide them with the remainder of the scan. And certainly... It is very clear what is easy and what is hard to do on ultrasound. Bowel endometriosis is not the easiest thing, but it's not the hardest. The uterosacral ligaments, I would say, are the hardest to master. The sliding sign, people really do believe that it is a very easy test to do. Actually, it's not as easy as people think it is because you're dealing with various uterus orientations, various uterus sizes, and then, of course, you're dealing with non-uterine pathology, ovarian masses. So when you have a big ovarian mass, that really does impact your ability to perform the sliding sign and interpret it. So the sliding sign, while it's billed as this really easy to do technique, and in fact, uh, I'm really happy to see that Scott Young has published on a son sonographer-led ultrasound for uh, endometriosis, which integrates the sliding sign. I think we can't underestimate the complexity of that particular test. So, you know, we're working on refining those. And then we bring the ultrasound machine and the probes to the operating room as much as possible as well, without taking the time from the day, because, you know, we want to be on time for the end, for the finishing of the list. So that's a great place to learn because patients are asleep and then you get the immediate feedback. Here's the scan, here's the surgery. So that's kind of what we're we're at now. Uh, I think it will grow more as we do advance the amount of imaging that's available to us in terms of resources and space. So yeah, that's where we're at. It's good. It will get better. Well, everything will always get better. There's always ways to improve. Uh, and certainly, I mean, I think I can speak for my fellows that this light bulb has gone off in their heads that it has now become impossible to properly manage a patient without advanced imaging. Because if you don't have the advanced imaging, you're missing a huge part of the story to be able to talk with patients about what's going on. And that story is integral in making decisions about what to do with respect to medical management, surgical management. The light bulb has gone off. And so it's amazing to see that because I know that the future is going to go towards an integrated imaging and clinical management approach. I just, I know it, it's going to go there. Certainly I'm going to be a driver for that change. But when you see others starting to the, do the process and the light bulb goes off, you just, you know, it confirms your suspicions that this is a necessity. You're doing fantastic work. And I forget that you're like in your first year at your real job. I mean, you're like a baby, but you've done so much in this field. You are just an, an, a really amazing human, Matthew, truly. <laughs> Thank you. So are you. My gosh. I'm very, I'm very impressed <laughs> by all of your uh, presentations internationally and your publications and the 
productivity of your fellows as well is amazing. So congratulations to you on that. Thank you. It's not hard to be motivated when you see the patients and the gaps of care, you know, there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. I'm often inspired by the uh, Hamilton soundtrack, particularly the song Nonstop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so good. I love that too. It's so good. Yeah. Anytime I need a boost, we can, it's the motivation. You know, we got to keep pushing. We got to work hard and, uh, you know, always still focus on ourselves and our well-being and, and make sure that we take care of ourselves. But I feel like we have an obligation to our patients and to the population. Women's health has never been a huge priority for, I don't know, the world, know. healthcare systems. Now is the time that we got to start to really drive that change and listen to our patients and integrate their voice into the into the care plans. Perfectly put. And you know you're also making my brain go, you know I'm I'm pretty obsessed with surgical coaching. You're making my brain go to a space where I feel like we could really integrate coaching with this advanced ultrasound as well. I, I don't you think like we could we could pair those two. Yeah, I I mean both imaging and surgery are very technical, very 3D spatial. They share a lot of similarities. And so I'm also optimistic that for people who are going down a surgical path of training, the learning curve for ultrasound actually will not be that steep. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll actually be relatively shallow or, or, you know, easy because you understand anatomy, Mm -hmm. you understand pathology, you understand what you want Mm -hmm. from a report in order to make decisions for for the, you know, counseling around the patients. So it's really not that different. It's just a different way of looking at things. Of course, it's not interventional in, a, in the sense that surgery is, although I will challenge the utility of ultrasound as somewhat therapeutic, even though it's diagnostic tool. I think when I, when I sit with a patient and I'm doing the scan and I'm showing them the screen, I'm saying, you know, here's your bowel nodule that has never been acknowledged ever, ever. And you have endometriosis, it's confirmed radiologically, you know, there is absolutely a therapeutic piece to that, that um, has never been capitalized on either. Diagnosis is therapy. Wow. That is powerful, right? Some of these women have had years and years and years of people saying, this is just your period. Like, this is the way it's going to be. And having that validation that there's something there causing that, that's huge. And in a way that's a bit more tangible than simply telling somebody, I think you have endo based on your clinical symptoms. Mm-hmm. And not to negate that, because in a world where imaging is inadequate or just not advanced enough yet, you know, we have to validate our patients and say, you know, your experience is real. We think you have endometriosis based on what you are telling us. And that's still, you know, going to be necessary for the foreseeable future until we really advance the imaging. But when you turn the screen and you say, here's your endo, it's seen by me. It's seen by the patient, even though the ultrasound screen looks generally like clouds or a blizzard to them, you know, yeah. they, they, they see what you're pointing at and they say, okay, wow. Like now I actually see what I have. It's real. And in a way it gives them control over a disease that has completely ravaged their life for so long. So, you know, I think we're moving to uh, a brand new territory here that's never really been explored. I talk a lot about this on Twitter and social media, this interface between imaging and surgery or imaging and clinical medicine. And uh, and I think there's an opportunity for us to really open up so many doors, answer so many interesting questions that remain by, I don't know, considering that this is uh, this is the direction we need to go. Well, Matthew, I think our time is up for this hour. I cannot thank thank you enough for your time and your expertise and for your continual energy in pushing us forward. So thank you so much for your hard work. And we hope to have you back on on Scrub sometime soon. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I would love love that. And we can maybe do part two on just rectovaginal (laughs) septal. We could do do an hour on that. (laughs) We've talking about that for a long time. Uh, No, there's a million other things to to talk about in this realm and talking about other entities like fibroids and adenomyosis, another enigmatic condition. So yeah, that interface between imaging and surgery is just, it's the possibilities are endless for beyond endometriosis. So Anytime, anytime. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to the final product. Awesome, Matthew. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. 
Bye-bye. Talk to you soon, Kara. Bye. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.